So the idea of owning your audience is you want to be in a situation where the majority of your traffic comes from users that you already know or that you have a relationship with. And until you have that, you're in a very weak position because ultimately the number of visitors to your website is determined by Facebook and Google. And let's face it, they're not interested in making your business work. They're going to make their business work. Welcome to the Agile Digital Transformation Podcast, where we explore different aspects of digital transformation and digital experience with your host, Tim Butera, Content and Community Manager at Agile Drop. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. I'm joined today by Jeff Kupiecki, CEO of Jink, leading audience engagement monetization partner for content creators. Today, we'll be talking about driving customer acquisition and engagement through your digital initiatives and what the key considerations are here in a world that's constantly changing. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure, Tim. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Anything to add or should we just jump into the questions? Ah, let's jump right in. That's always more interesting than the speaker. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. So why has customer engagement become such an important element of business that we're talking about it today, like on the same level as customer acquisition? Well, everyone knows that it costs a lot more money to acquire a new customer versus retaining your existing ones. So why would you make your life harder? Focus on the existing ones. And the best way to ensure you keep an existing customer is to make sure that they're retained by being engaged. You know, users that come to your website, that open your emails, that kind of buy your product on a regular basis are very engaged. And the challenge for you is obviously to create a way for all your users to be that way so they don't churn. So we tell people focus on that engagement side of the equation and you'll end up having to spend less than on the acquisition side. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. But, and it really shows how the two really go go hand in hand together, right? You can't really have one without the other, even if you're, even if, as we just said, you know, it makes more monetary sense to focus on one of them. That's right. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Generally, there are signals or data that consumers will provide you. And as good as you are to read those, you'll be able to predict whether or not someone will become your customer or someone who is already a customer will stay with you uh, or versus, you know, leaving your platform. Okay, as you said, we'll dedicate more time to this later. But uh, first, what tools and techniques have you seen be, be put to the best and most effective use for driving online inquisition and engagement? And how have these techniques and tools th evolved throughout the years? Great. So, you know, our view is that the, as close as you can get to where there's a one-to-one -one relationship between your content whether that's uh, you know um, media content or an offer or a product, and the actual user at the time that they're interested, that's what you're trying to achieve. So in the old days, the way that worked was you would go into the garage and find everything you have. You'd bundle that up in a nice, pretty newsletter, and you send that and hope somebody has some interest in that. That's a very old way of doing it. <laughs> you know, the new way is you want to be thinking about what do you know about that consumer, what have they shown interest in the past. What do you have that might be a match to that interest? And then how do you optimize what you send, including how you send it and what time do you send it? So we'll kind of use an example. If your uh, audience might be soccer, or I'll call it football fans, right? <laughs> and you know we're you know finding something about a trade that somebody might be famous who's leaving one team to another, that's pretty relevant to those people who follow the sport. 
But if I sent that information in the off season, when it wasn't necessarily relevant to the audience, or I might've sent it to them on their work computer, so to speak, on a desktop, where the games were being played on the weekends, I would be missing that match, not just of the content, but the audience and potentially the time and even the place or the channel, if you will. Mm -hmm. So what we've seen over time is people have gotten more sophisticated on how they think of that one-to-one -one matching that includes not just the content itself, but also the channel. In other words, where that user is reading the content, either what device, what kind of uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, computer they're using, and the time, right? Which becomes very important to kind of in what mindset are they to read your content or not. Yeah, that's a very important point and a good point about the channel. This was what I was thinking about, right? We live right now. We live in this so-called omni-channel or multi-channel landscape, and we've seen a huge rise in like device and and channel usage in the past years. And obviously, this had has to have some kind of impact on these topics. Yeah. So I'll use an example. We we use this a lot, but I think it helps really bring it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very clearly for your your audience. You know, imagine you're standing online at a coffee store, you know, a Starbucks or whatever, and you get an email that has something that's interesting, right? It could be a, a breaking news or it could be a product that goes on sale. The use case for that person is they're snacking on content. They have two or three seconds. They're not engaging. So you wanna keep it very light, just the headline or just the kind of the key information. And that person might come back to that note or be more open to it when they're in a long form format. So maybe it's at night, they're on a tablet, or during the day, they're at work on, on a desktop. And so getting good at understanding that the context of where the user is will determine how well they engage with the content becomes critical. And we've been advising clients about thinking about that, where you want to change then the message, even the length of the message, based on the medium and the time of day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, content is king, but context is slowly overtaking its place somehow. <laughs> I think you always need both. You yeah, can't yeah, do one yeah. without people. Yeah, that's the best way to go about it, definitely. And what about COVID? It's had an impact on practically all parts of our, our lives and all parts of the digital. So what kind of impact has it, had, has it had on the importance and also on the tactics of driving acquisition and engagement online? Yeah. So we're in a very unique uh, place in that we've been very active in the primary messaging channel of email. And we've been involved in that for, for many years. During COVID, we saw an amazing statistic, which is that almost every single one of our clients, our publishers, saw an increase in engagement during COVID. Now you ask yourself, is that because people just stopped, you know, started using the internet more? That's obvious, but it was actually a channel shift away from social media, mm -hmm. away from search, and into more brands and let's call them, uh, you know, senders that had reputation. And they made people feel comfortable with the information they were sharing. And I'll use an example. We have a client called Nextdoor, and they're in the business of providing neighborhood information. You could imagine the beginning of COVID, if you were interested in knowing what stores were locked down, what were going to be the new you know, uh, requirements, what would your children have to do in terms of school and you know, being at home or not, all that information was extremely important. And people were not trusting what they read on Facebook or on other social media platforms. They wanted authoritative, editorialized, sent to them in a channel they know they can trust. Mm -hmm. So we saw for that client, as an example, an enormous increase in the engagement of audience using email. And when we talked to end users, we learned they actually preferred 
the channel that was comfortable to them, the one that was familiar, the one that had a high trust in. They don't really trust social media. So when it came to really important information that impacted their lives, they wanted a channel that they trust from a sender that had a strong brand reputation. We've surveyed different types of content during COVID. And what's really interesting, and I can share this, is that we saw that the items that actually did very well were things that did have more to do with people's concerns. Mm -hmm. So it turns out faith-based content, where people were sending things about religion, humor, were both up the same percentage. I'll let the audience figure out you know, what that might mean. But you know, that's in lieu of, we saw a decline in obviously travel-related content, uh, local e-commerce you know, decline, but it was kind of more content people were kind of searching for, yearning for, that we saw an increase in. And that was pretty interesting. One other fact about COVID, I actually do think, now we've measured this since March 11th when uh, the pandemic was declared, and it's been now 18 months, we have not seen a return to pre-pandemic levels of engagement, meaning we've sustained a higher level of usage on our publishers and our platforms all through the period. And that suggests to us that people have recognized the power and value of a direct connection between a sender and their end user that isn't disintermediated by a Google or a Facebook and doesn't lend itself to the risks and concerns that social media has as it relates to the content that's being distributed. Yeah, some very good points here. And thank you for taking us through through your observations and through your experience, really much more valuable insights that, that, that it's actionable, great. Maybe on a different note, how important would you say the innovation in artificial intelligence is in this context? Are AI strategies effective for driving customer acquisition and engagement? Absolutely. And let's just use a simple math problem. Our average publisher has over a million users, and they probably have over 100,000 pieces of content. If we go to the editors and say, okay, you figure out the best match between these million and this 100,000, no human being can make that yeah. connection. So what they do is they say, we're not going to make the connection. We'll do the most popular. Everybody gets the same content. I don't know of any business that does well by giving everybody the same thing. Right? The old Model T, as long as it's black, that's gone away. Right? <laughs> now you got to cater to every taste and preference. And especially when it comes to content, which is so easy to kind of get wrong. Right? You think people are interested in the story, but they're really not. Right? We send the... Uh, the Liverpool story to Chelsea, and suddenly now they'll never open the emails again, right? So you want to get to a point where you can do that matching of all that content and those users in an automated way, where AI is so effective is that it augments the humans. It doesn't replace them, mm -hmm. but it provides a basis to say, we can actually take the bulk of this matching exercise and let the computer decide. And then that enables an editor to still pick, here's the five most recent articles, the most recommended articles, here's our editor's picks. There's a lot of value in the qualitative assessment. But when you have that big quantitative problem, there's no better solution than letting AI do that optimization and doing that based on an engagement metric like click-through, mm -hmm. not based on an open metric or some other kind of more input. It's based on, did people find value in the article? Did they read it? Did they click through? And that's what you wanna to use to then optimize that uh, process. This was a really great showcase of how, how artificial intelligence strategies kind of factor into this. It's really, as you said, they augment the human. And you know, we, we've 
heard it countless times. And by now, I think that, that very few people still have fears of, you know, AI overlords taking over in the near future. Uh, but it's still nice to hear such a great example of, you know, how, how basically artificial intelligence, what it does is it frees up the, the creative people to do more creative work, right? Because now through automation, the content creators are actually able to focus on the kind of content that will best resonate with the audiences and with the segments that were kind of provided to them through the AI mechanisms. Yeah, I'll use another example. I think it would be interesting. You know, we serve a, an old, old publisher in the United States called Farmer's Almanac. For those who are very familiar with them, they were founded, I think, in 1840, and they talked about crops and weather. And while with all the climate change, that's still pretty relevant, though, if you're in that business. Well, it turns out they have a long, long tail of old articles, like things that are written over 100 years ago. So even if they get new users, they have this problem of how do they discover? How do they allow the end users to discover new content? Again, the problem is too much content, too many users. How do they do that? So they're using our technology. And what they've told us is it, it enables a way to do discovery that they wouldn't have done manually. They're exploring content areas that people have never been exposed to. And as the algorithm finds things that people are interested in, that data gets fed back to the editors. And now they know, you know what? It turns out, you know, fruit pies in the fall are making a comeback and people want to figure out how to get more fruit pies, right? So let's kind of make some more content around that topic. And it's only through that discovery mechanism that AI enable that we'd be able to give them those insights. Yeah, it's like you can get some insights through this that you would never be able to get otherwise because it, it's just, you know, it it's not in your frame of, of solution solving in that in that time, I guess. Right. Awesome. What about owning your own audience? What what factor does this have in in acquisition and engagement? And maybe why is this something that businesses should always keep in consideration when selecting both the optimal technologies and strategies for this? Absolutely. If you ran a store and you were collecting, uh, you know, credit cards or whatever, and I told you, okay, after every sale, delete the file of anybody who was in there, erase the memory from your salespeople of who came in and tomorrow, hopefully somebody will come in again and you'll resell to them. That's kind of the situation that most publishers have to get their audience to come back. Most of the traffic comes from social media sharing, Facebook, or search, right, SEO that comes from Google. And the problem is when those users come over to the site, there's no data about them. They have no way to address them. They don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And as they interact, they don't really own that audience. They're renting it. Because if the user finds what they're looking for, great. But if not, there's no way to bring them back. The idea of owning the audience is you want to be in a situation that when you have visitors to your site, you get them into some kind of known relationship where you can resend to them content. They looked at a product, they abandoned it, you send it out through their shopping cart. They were browsing on articles, you now know what they like, send them content about that topic area. If you don't have a way to address to them, an email address, a push ID, a mobile ID, you're never gonna get them back. So the idea of owning your audience is you wanna be in a situation where the majority of your traffic comes from users that you already know or that you have a relationship with. And until you have that, you're in a very weak position because ultimately the number of visitors to your website is determined by Facebook and Google. And let's face it, they're not interested in making your business work, they're gonna make their business work. So you wanna kind of be in a situation where you can control more of your own destiny. 
and that's only your own audience. And where do you then keep and how do you keep this customer data unified once you decide that you need to keep it? Great. So it has to be privacy compliant. Mm -hmm. This is first party data owned by the publishers with the consent of the end user. Our view is that if you use an email address, that's a great vehicle to both get the consent and that it's pretty sticky. People don't generally change their email address. And the other benefit is with email, no matter what device or channel you come in on, you're on your tablet, you're on your mobile phone, you're on your desktop, you're opening up emails, it's the same user. So the publisher can now track your behavior in multiple channels with a single identifier. That is information you can always tell them to don't track. You can always opt out. But once you've opted in, the benefit is you'll get a lot more relevancy on the information that's pushed to you and even that's shown to you. And so the benefit, again, to the end user is a lot more, um, uh, if you will, kind of closer to what you're interested in, what you're searching for. And then obviously for the publisher, they're now getting a user that's more engaged. Mm -hmm. what, what about from the perspective of the company? Like I'm thinking of scenarios when there are maybe multiple teams that have to work with this customer data. And you know, how do you make sure that, that they, they're working with the same data and that they, they don't you know, target, target customers that have already been targeted or like treat them as if they know nothing about them, even though the customer knows they do? Right. And that's a challenge because, again, in the old way of the world, we use cookies. And what a cookie mm -hmm. is, is an identifier for a computer. But if you and a spouse share a computer, it's the same cookie. So if you're browsing for one <laughs> thing and she's browsing for something else, then suddenly you're going to see, you know, retargeting ads for, their, you know, her topics. What we tell customers is that you do need to have a, a, a clear policy internally where you try and share the data among the teams. But that has a unique key, something that no matter which channel they're on, it's unique to them. Again, email address is a great example because you can hash that, you can make it de-identified, but it's very unique no matter where you see that user. And then if it turns out that you add other data to it, an address, a physical address, a cookie, you can then link that to the same user profile and then it has integrity and therefore you can use it across the whole company. So there has to be a discussion, there has to be obviously coordination. Uh, companies like ours obviously help publishers provide that type of technology. But that would be the way that you can leverage all the benefits of these user signals or the information about them, but in a privacy compliant and in a very effective way that allows everybody across the organization to share that information. Yeah, I really think that that privacy compliant data usage will be one of the most important factors of a digital business in going forward. Basically, it's already happening now. <laughs> Uh, okay, do you have any predictions for the future developments in customer acquisition and engagement, either near future or if you have predictions for, I don't know, a year or two years from now, go ahead. Well, there's the obvious ones. I mean, I think the idea of automation will continue mm -hmm. to move forward. That's progress. And I think everybody sees the benefit of that. I think the strength of privacy and the importance of that, it, there'll be a much more explicit trade-off for a user. If I give a user a choice and say it's $10 a month for this content, or you can agree to have some of your profile shared with relevant suppliers. I think people get that trade-off. Mm -hmm. I'm either it's worth me to spend $10 and not have my data shared, or I'll get free content and I'll see advertising. And I think that that trend where that's more explicit and clear to the user, I don't think will reduce free content. I think it will just reinforce the trade-off which is you're getting this for free because our advertisers 
are getting information or their people are targeting you are getting that. And as long as you can control that, I do believe that people um, will evolve towards a world where that's more prevalent. In terms of predictions, I think that the challenge that uh, Google has created in the industry where cookies are not defendable now because third-party cookies are not going to be used on websites, according mm-hmm. to Chrome, I think that will create more uncertainty, less clarity, and I don't think there'll be a standard yet. So that might be counterintuitive. People are working on standards. There's something called Flock. There's others. My own opinion is we'll muddle through and certain publishers will figure out their own solution and they will be successful, but the average publisher will not. And I think that will affect progress. So until we kind of, I think, demonstrate there's a better way to do this, we might have to muddle through a bit because of these changes. Do you maybe have any tips on how to start, how to begin this process? Oh, absolutely. For sure, you should be asking for email. No matter mm-hmm. what website you run, no matter what product you're in, if you're not asking everybody to give you that you know, small kind of commitment, which is their email address in exchange for offers, discounts, more content, exclusive, you know, breaking, anything you can do to make that worthwhile, that's number one, you have to do that. Once you have that, you're welcome to talk to organizations like ours, but not only us. How do you make that relevant? Mm-hmm. How do you make that personalized? How do you make that automated? And uh, you know that's a lot that we can talk, talk about it, but ultimately you want to do less work for more benefit. And uh, leveraging what's now available through AI is one way kind of do that. But even if you're not going to use a vendor, I would say focus on building out your direct controlled audience. And that's what you should focus on because that's where all the value is. That's a great tip and a great note to finish on, Jeff. This has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today. Just before we finish, uh, if our listeners wanted to reach out to you or learn more about Jing, uh, where can they reach you? Sure. I'll give out my email address and my company's uh, URL. We're jing.com. Very easy. J-E-E-N-G. All the information's on there. And if somebody wants to talk to me directly, it's very simple. I'm Jeff at Jing. And I look forward to hearing from anybody. Awesome. Thanks again, Jeff. This has been great. And to our listeners, that's all for this episode. Have a great day, everyone, and stay safe. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to check out our other episodes, you can find all of them at agiledrop.com slash podcast, as well as on all the most popular podcasting platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes, and don't forget to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues.